Our governments had to prove that you have it at least better than what the workers in the Soviet Union do. Mm. It takes an ideologue, right? It takes a, a catalyzing like ideology to yeah. basically grip the masses. Yo, what is going on? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I'm Austin Hayden Smith, and once again, I am all by my lonesome as Troy is still trekking across the United States. He is somewhere between Texas and Tennessee. So I don't know where he is at the moment, but much love shouts out to our boy, the one who grounds me on this podcast, which means that you have to deal with my scatterbrained thoughts this week as I welcome a guest, and I'm very excited about this. I'm welcoming a colleague of mine named Jay Tharapel, who runs a website called Oriental Despot, where he writes about his research interests in political economy, politics, geopolitics. Uh, economic theory, etc., etc. He is a researcher in political economy as well as an activist, and I would say a provocateur, uh, and I mean that in with high regard. So today, actually, we're going to delve into a quite provocative topic about Stalinism, and we're going to use as inspiration for the talk as a launchpad in an article that he wrote on his website. Um, called Anti-Stalinism is Left-Wing Racism. So it is going to be quite interesting, and it's definitely going to ruffle some of your feathers, especially for those of you out there that are hardline anti-Stalinists um, or uh, anarchists or libertarians or maybe those of you who are just unfamiliar with any of these terms, but nevertheless you kind of have an ingrained sense, negative sentiment towards the USSR and Stalinism and things like that. So we're going to delve into some of these topics and kind of see what his defense is, because he actually has some really, I think, interesting things to consider regarding the relationship between Stalinism and uh, post-colonial theory. And so we'll delve into some of those things. So stick around for that. And if you're if you are negatively inclined towards some of this topic, just come in with an open mind. Don't immediately be chomping at the bit to try to jump into the discussion, to say something as a retort. I would say just try to listen with as an open ears as possible because I find these discussions to be really difficult sometimes because especially as an American, I just grew up in a world where the USSR and Stalin are just kind of equated as these intrinsic evils. Um, and so I would say, you know, give him a fair hearing. Let's work through these things. Um, this isn't an interview where I'm trying to pin him uh, this is a dialogue between two colleagues who are trying to work through some things, and even if I come out on the other end still disagreeing with some fundamental ideas of his, there's, I think, some important things that he does bring up that um, that we can consider as we maybe dialectically wrestle through some of these tensions that we're going to try to navigate through. So that'll be coming up in just one second. I do want to just give a quick uh, reminder that our 100th episode is coming up in two episodes from now. Troy will be back for that 100th episode for sure, and we are going to be fielding for the entire episode questions from you all. So please send us your questions on Instagram 
You can find us owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can find us on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Um, you can email us, owls at dawnpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you just individually follow either myself or Troy on any of our social medias, you can shoot us a message or at us and you can ask us a question. And we will just basically spend the entire time delving into some questions and then just kind of talking and maybe maybe getting sentimental with each other about our three years and 100 episodes that we've endured for the sake of our performative philosophical art project that is Owls at Dawn. But um, yeah, so get those questions in. And then, of course, if you do find value in what we're producing, please go to patreon.com slash owlsatdawn where you can support us and you will find how you can get access to bonus content, which is bonus episodes, the monthly newsletter, as well as being able to recommend episodes for our Democracy Motherfuckers tier, which, by the way, we are going to be setting up a poll, so it's not ready today, as in I'm releasing this, I guess it's Tuesday night my time so it'll be I guess you'll be waking up Tuesday morning in America and maybe Tuesday afternoon in the UK and wherever else you are in the world I have no idea but um so it'll be up the poll will be up on Patreon within the next two days of our three choices that we have been um that we have selected to offer to our patrons to choose what the next episode democracy motherfuckers episode topic will be so go to patreon.com slash owls at dawn to learn more about all of that shit and i think that is pretty much all i have to say at the moment so i'm going to stop little musical interlude hit it all right sick so we are going to be jumping into our main segment um and as i said at the outset troy is still uh, doing his cross-country travels so he's not going to make it with us today, but that's all right. I got a great co-host this week, a buddy of mine, Jay Therapel, who is also known as uh, the Oriental Despot, which is that <laughs> yeah. the name of your website. It's the name that I that I that I thought would be uh, most <laughs> appropriate for explaining my politics to people. Most provocative. Most provocative. Yeah. <laughs> um, is going to join. He's a researcher in political economy. He's a writer, uh, activist, and so we're going to talk about. Um, I think some. I guess we're going to try to be. Not intentionally controversial, but we're going to we're going to be provocative. We're going to provoke um, some thought and work through. Uh, I guess taking an article that he wrote as our backbone to the chat, but kind of work through some issues pertaining to Stalinism, um, colonialism, racism, anti-Stalinism, and of course working through this provocative statement of a piece you wrote called "Anti-Stalinism is just left-wing racism." <laughs> so I guess okay. So this is the first thing. So, like, would you say like you know people people use tanky yeah. as a derogatory term? Do you wear this as like a badge of? I kind of do because it sounds kind of <laughs> badass, you know. Tanky, it's not. <laughs> That's kind of so bad. It could be worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be worse. So I don't mind it. No. Yeah. So do you call yourself a Stalinist? I don't call myself a Stalinist. No, I prefer communist. But if someone says you're a Stalinist, I just wear it without any without any confrontation. Okay. What, what do you think, if someone calls you a Stalinist, what does that mean from their perspective? Ah, from their perspective, I think it's, it's basically the Cold War propaganda. It's like this person supports something that is evil, you know, and therefore uh, he has to be denounced and ridiculed, etc. Whereas okay. I'm just saying, look, um, you know, we need to advocate for socialism. Um, and there's, I think, communists are the only, um, the only political ideology 
where we uh, downplay and ridicule the only countries to have attempted to implement our ideology. Mm. So that's that's always been very strange to me. Do you think you get that more from like liberals, or do you get that equally from like trots and other socialists? In the past, I used to get it from people who were right wing, who were um, you know in a, in a very neoliberal sense, right? Okay. Um, in that sense, they were liberal. Um, but these days, I've noticed uh, there has been a lot of anti-Stalinism on the left. I mean, I'd say the mm. dominant uh, perspective on the Soviet Union is anti-Stalinism. Mm. Um, so, but ha- having said that, um, I have realised that uh, the the right wing generally over time have been more kind of uh, ambivalent about the USSR. They've been willing to recognize its achievements. They've been willing to basically well, say wait, when some... You, you mean like the far right? I mean, yeah, I mean I mean the far right. I, I just mean generally open, open-minded thinkers, right? On people, people on the far right who can... I'm not saying... I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think. I mean, it's hard for me because in America, you say anything positive about USSR. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think like who, like... There's a, there's a collection of people. So you've got some people on the far right. You've got some people who are just like philosophically inclined. They're traditional. They're, they're, they're monarchists, for example. Um, right. Very crusty conservative types who look at the USSR and they say, okay, well, you know, they did this for their people. But they don't have a savior complex, which is that, mm-hmm. you know, that, that yearning that you hear from a lot of leftists where they imagine that their mm-hmm. job is to go out and save people from their own governments, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I know. See, again, it's it's totally different because coming from America, I was raised that the Soviets are like the bad guys. You look at Rocky IV, the Soviet is the bad guy. Mm. All of the fucking movies, it's like the red invasion yeah. is going to come. And it's just, it wasn't even, I think for me growing up, I, I mean, I was born in the 80s. Uh, I don't have any memory of like the collapse of the wall or anything. I was too young. But, but I remember growing up, we'll say... Uh, I really grew up where I have memories in the 90s, mostly late 80s, 90s, but I, politically I wasn't paying much attention. But I absolutely remember not not having like really strong negative feelings about the USSR, but just kind of like just assuming that it was wrong, you know? And like all of my education in elementary school and I think even in through high school, which is extremely... Anglo-centric, American-centric. Like, bro, I didn't even learn about fucking Dunkirk, the event of Dunkirk, until I watched the goddamn movie that came out a couple years ago. I didn't even know that was a big event because for us, World War II starts with the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So, like, I didn't even fucking learn about Dunkirk and the Dunkirk. So, like, like, it was so American-centric, right? Which means that, like, everything else was just kind of just diminished somehow. And so it was just presumed. Like, it wasn't even something that was argued. There was no debate about the merits of the USSR. It was just simply, yeah, that they were bad. And then it was like looking at photographs of, you know, U.S. presidents and then British prime ministers with Stalin during World War II, like, shaking hands and shit. And you're like, what the fuck is going on here? I thought that they were the bad guys. And then I started to kind of think critically, like, oh, okay, so there are political motivations potentially behind how it is that we castigate certain people or how it is that we deride this country or this nation yeah. or this people or something like that. You that's know what right. I mean? And there's an agenda to it, right? And right. that this is this is something that I've always been saying to anyone. If they just call themselves left-wing socialists, that's all that matters for me to establish this as our kind of common ground, right? I say, if you were to approach someone in the street and say, and, and try and advocate for socialism, um, what, what are the responses that you can anticipate? And pretty much always they say, 
that those that they're speaking to will immediately bring up the USSR, China, Stalin, Mao, etc., etc. And I said, okay, in that case, there's a fork in the road for you. You can either go down two paths. The first path, which is really synonymous with the blue pill, you know, is to say, oh, I completely disavow those countries, the Soviet Union, China. Uh, they have nothing to teach us whatsoever. Right. They're just human rights atrocities. In fact, the entire history of these countries is just the history of human rights abuses. Nothing else has happened there. Genocide as well, starvation. Um, that's one path. And that is, I would say, the dominant path. That is the that is at the soul of, of anti-Stalinism among the left. Is that the hegemonic... Um I mean, would you call it a hegemonic liberal or a hegemonic uh, Western European Anglo ideology? Hegemonic liberal. Um, I I think there's always been, again, there's been two types of um, uh, uh, kind of imperial propaganda. And I mentioned this, right? Like one is we're going to go out there and save these people from their own governments, right? And that can be weaponized for imperial objectives. So, for example, the attempt to overthrow the Syrian government was motivated by the meme that, you know, mm-hmm. we have to save the Syrian people from their own government. Um, mm-hmm. The other one is the is the more kind of honest, realist approach where you just have people saying, we are going to attack this country because it's in our interest, we're serving our national, um, national needs, etc. Um, so at a certain level, the invasion of Iraq was like that, you know, right. at, at a certain level, it was justified on those grounds. Mm-hmm. Right? We have yeah. to go out and punish someone to show them that we're not to be messed with because of 9-11. Um, I think the, the, the latter kind of imperial narrative where you rely on like this saviour complex, mm. um, that's also a, a core of anti-Stalinism as well. Okay. Um, so that's the one fork in the road. That's, that's, the, blue, f- that's the blue pill. That's the blue That's pill. where you yeah. stay entrenched in your kind of ideological persuasion. That's right. There's this great... Um, do you know who David Foster Wallace is? No, I don't. So he's an author and he wrote you know a couple of famous... Uh, famous books, his most famous one is called Infinite Jest, but he gave this graduation speech called This is Water. And in it, he talks about how kind of this idea of, of the does a fish know it's wet yeah, sort of yeah. thing, right? And when you're in it and you're just fucking swimming around, oh, I think we talked about this the other day at lunch. Did we talk about this? We did, we yeah. did. I, re- I remember now, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's like if you're just swimming along, then you don't really know what wetness is because you don't even have anything to judge exactly. anything other than wetness. You just simply exist so maybe the blue pill is kind of like this is wet it's kind of that yeah and and that's why i am really impressed with memes right because they 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 send very very powerful messages using such simple tools that everyone can engage in Mm. um but what you mentioned about the fish in water is very similar to marx's definition of ideology for marx um ideology is like you know when you're doing something but you don't know that you're doing it (laughs) right 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 right. yeah 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 that's the blue pill okay so that's the blue pill um so that's the one path, and then what's the red pill? The red pill is to say, actually, your entire conception of history is wrong. Okay. Right. Uh, <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. That um, that actually, if you're if you're looking at it from like you know like a, if if you treat this if you're speaking to a leftist and you're speak you, you got to speak to them as if you're on the same team that you want the same things. Right. Common ground, right? It's important right. in every discussion. That's right. Um. So then it's important to to say to them, look, um. If you go down the fork in the road where you denounce every single country to have espoused or or attempted to implement the ideology that, that you have in common, or at least the word that you have in common, socialism, mm. right? Then um, then no one's going to take you seriously when you say that it's going to be it's going to mm. work well when we do it this time around. In fact, mm. that's the argument Jordan Peterson uses, right, against mm. people who uh, argue for socialism, because he's always arguing against anti-Stalinists who have a very strong savior complex. 
Um, so then I'd say, look, Red Pill is actually the Soviet Union's history uh, has has been intentionally distorted, right? I mean, actually, there's no such thing as distortion. There's just multiple narratives, right? Okay. And depending on the on the on the interests of the state that you live in, a certain narrative will be more mm. pronounced. Um, and then say, yeah, it's just one narrative. You know, what about the narrative of the people who actually live in this country? So in Russia, Stalin's a very popular guy. I was there in, uh, in mm. 2017. They have Stalin memorabilia everywhere. There's always polls coming out saying that, like, he's, he's up there with Peter the Great in the minds of Russians as, like, who the greatest Russian is, even though he wasn't Russian. <laughs> he was Georgian. Um, well, yeah, that's what I was just going to say, right? And it, yeah. Don't people hold that against him? Didn't you you talk about that in the article, right? That because did you say that because he's George Middle Eastern despot. That's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm saying that there's a there's a meme, you know, that they're trying to run, which is that you know Stalin was basically just you know a meme of a Middle Eastern despot, an Oriental uh, yeah. despot, which is a reference to my uh, yes. website, you know. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so there's this there's this attempt to kind of. Uh, um, uh, uh, weaponize like this past in order to justify aggression in the future hmm. you know you create a meme of like a despot and then you say okay well this country fits that meme this country fits that meme. right yeah we talked about this and i think this was actually really interesting and i think we both kind of liked this because i had just watched sleeping beauty right and i was talking about how maleficent in uh, sleeping beauty she has no motivation hmm. she's just fucking evil and we're never told why she hates aurora why she wants to kill aurora anything like that it's just that she is the embodiment of pure evil right so right. from a storytelling perspective it's actually quite weak because it doesn't give you anything that's compelling as a viewer to gravitate or to empathize with her so you're clearly just bought in that we're viewing the side of the monarchy the good side the light side aurora's side the side of the kingdom as mm -hmm. the good side they're the embodiment of love the possibility of love, of the fulfillment of uniting these kingdoms together, whereas she just summons the powers of hell and has like warp hog, I don't know, deputies that go carry out her fucking chaos or whatever. But it's not a really compelling mm. drama because there's nothing there. And it's, so it's really easy. So similarly, and so you just buy into it. And That's you just right. like ideologically, like you, you have nothing there. Whereas like a compelling story, um, is when you actually have a sort of more nuanced perspective mm. on this. And it seems really, really interesting that the way it seems that maybe the blue pill path uh, frames the despot of like Stalinism is in order to not in any way allow for a sympathy with the quote unquote villain. Because if you just simply demarcate one is evil and one is good, then you just you just buy into it automatically. You don't in any way look at somebody like Stalin and say, well, there are good characteristics. Mm. A lot of what the Soviet Union was actually really technologically beneficial. Um, you know, that obviously they fucking were world leaders in the space race and stuff like that. Um, did they do some good things? You don't even have a moment where you can even speak favorably mm. because it's just simply Stalin despot, totalitarianism bad. You start speaking about Stalin in the same breath as we do fascists and Mussolini and Hitler and National Socialism, and it's just immediately disregarded because the light kingdom, the kingdom of the white, is America. And that's kind of problematic. And your argument is, well, but wait, we need to realize that there are imperial narratives and motivations that are creating that division in the first place. Mm. So let's stop and let's take a step back without just drinking the Kool-Aid. Yeah, true. I mean, even even from the standpoint of the of working class interests in a first world country, um, be it Australia, the United States, uh, in many ways we owe the fact that we have a welfare state 
to the reality that our governments had to prove to the workers in this country that you have it at least better than what the workers in the Soviet Union do. So, <laughs> you know, right. like they understood that, you know, you've got to, on the one hand, try and create a rival welfare state, but then on the other hand, you have to, um, you have to make sure that you denounce and, and dismiss the other welfare state or the socialist state in the form of the USSR. So is it a way, do you think, of, it's a way of pacifying labor? By saying, like, we'll give you certain concessions, and then at the same time, look at how great you have it compared to those backwards people over there. Yeah, it is. It's part of that. It's part of that. But, like, my my argument is that, um, you know, you, you in order to fully, um, uh, you know, convince someone that there is an alternative narrative, you have to start at the very beginning. So, one thing that I've noticed with anti-Stalinism is that in the West in particular, it comes out of anti anti-Trotsky comes out of Trotskyism. Right. right. It has a very strong Trotskyist tradition. And does does this trace back not just to Trotsky, but you think of like the, the dominating influence of uh, Cliff. So it's like the Cliffite yeah. parties. Like That's right. The socialist work uh, is SWP that was in the UK. Yeah. And then is it IPO? ISO. ISO, I'm sorry. Yeah, ISO. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, one thing that people don't know about Tony Cliff is that um, in when he wrote about like state capitalism in Russia... He was uh, he was writing sympathetically about the um, the uh, anti-Stalinist uh, opposition, and he mm. said that they wanted to establish a socialist democracy, quote unquote socialist yeah. democracy. But when he came around to identifying who these were, he mentioned the Vlasov movement and the Ukrainian uh, insurgent army. Now these are two Nazi collaborationist militias that fought with the invasion against the Red Army against the Soviet Union. I found that interesting. I just dug that up and I thought, holy, mm. like, I can't believe that, you know, this is the guy who's, um, who's, who's had such a pioneering influence yeah. in pushing the anti-Stalin narrative. But what it comes down to is that Trotskyist, the, the split between Stalin and Trotsky was essentially on the question of, um, of, of permanent revolution. Right, you know, socialism in one country. Socialism in one country. I mean, versus um, what is the opposite? I mean, if you or are socialism example, in no other country. Right? Wasn't that who said that? Was someone that was a criticism of Stalin? It's like he's like socialism and he's preventing it. Yeah, yeah he's preventing it because it's socialism in no other country. Yeah. By yeah. But there's a there's a problem with this. I mean, ultimately, the the question we have to ask is that why is it that in the in the turmoil of the First World War, Russia was able to pull off a revolution, but the rest of Western Europe was was unable to? I mean. Uh, Germany is the home of Marxism, but and that's where everyone had the hopes that there's going to be this great revolution in Germany, right? But it didn't happen in Germany. It was a complete right. flop. Right. It, it happened in Russia where they didn't expect it to happen in Europe, right? right. So then we have to ask the question, why is it that um, that the, there was no revolutionary um, um, fervor among Western Europeans? And the answer that Lenin came to was that Western European countries, the, being the colonial empires that they were, they had, a bene- they had, a, had an interest in colonialism. In particular, Britain, you know. So Lenin said that, uh, you know, there is the material basis for colonial chauvinism is the fact that Britain, the British bourgeoisie benefits more from the exploitation of India, mm. right, than it does from its own population. And that its own population, including the working class, they get crumbs from the table in the form of super profit. So they benefit from this imperialism mm. because of all the cheap raw materials that go into right. into their factories. And mm. even if they were exploited, you know, in the words mm. of, um, of Joan Robinson, you know, there's only one thing worse than being exploited, which is not being exploited under capitalism and you don't have a job. Mm. They were exper- they're, ex- they're experiencing wage growth. They were allowed to emigrate. 
to countries like Australia because um, India's trade surpluses paid for Britain's trade deficits. You know, mm. trade deficits and capital exports to countries like Australia, Canada, New Zealand. Yeah, one of the things you talk about in this article, it was a really lovely way of putting it, as I think you talk about um, how it was a bleeding process synonymous with capital destruction, not accumulation. Exactly, that was Marx's mistake. And I think that that is a really interesting way of viewing um, uneven development, maybe, let's yeah, see. Yeah, underdevelopment. It, underdevelopment, right, yeah. is that it's a bleeding process. And so precisely the reason that the conditions of industrialization or modernization don't take hold in these colonial um, in these colonial terrains is precisely because it's not, there are there is no um, infrastructural investment or capital investment. There's no um, composition of capital, organic composition of mm. capital whatsoever because there's no conditions for accumulation because it's just pure extraction. It's like a, a what, what is it again? A bleeding a process. A bleeding process. Yeah. yeah. So that was like, Marx's words actually. He uses bleeding he process. Uses but later, bleeding right? Process. Is that what your in point In 1881. Was? So my point okay. was that in, if, you, if you read Marx in 1857, he's under the impression that the British are creating a social revolution in India. Right. Okay. That the, the British. Right. They're the going to create the conditions for capitalist exactly. accumulation to d- proletarianize people. That's going to be a new revolutionary right. subject, etc. Yeah. Right. So they're saying that the exploitation, the expropriation of the Indian peasantry in India is akin to the expropriation of the British peasantry, and that just of as the, like, just as during yeah. feudal mannerism and the That's enclosure right. acts and stuff. The, okay. During the enclosure, the, the enclosures, right? Yeah. And so, just as the uh, the British peasantry's expropriation created the basis for capitalism in Britain, the same process was was being undertaken in India. In a sense, like Britain was bringing capitalism to India and then India would see all of this growth and okay. the creation of a working class which would eventually lead India to you know, um, have have its own working class uh, population capable of contributing to the eventual mm. proletarian revolution that the entire world would take part in. So Marx assumed class polarization, that the world was being brought, divided into two great hostile camps directly facing each other, bourgeoisie right. and proletariat. Um, whereas the argument about underdevelopment is that actually there's geographic polarization, the primary contradiction, and this is... Peripheral and center. Yeah, 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 core and periphery. Yeah. Um, and this explains why in the First World War, Western Europeans didn't make a revolution, mm. right? Because they had... Uh, it's not that they had nothing to lose but their chains. It was that they had nothing to lose but the colonies that subsidized their wages, hmm. you know? I like, I think this is interesting. So you, because you are intentionally, and I just want to kind of footnote or just note this, but so you're, you're, you're kind of doing like a genealogical, historical unpacking to say that this anti-Stalinism is essentially rooted in how it is that we understand the history of colonialism. And if you do not understand that, then you will, you will have a misreading of um, the value and the role and the activities of both uh, Western imperial nations and also the Soviet Union, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, one of the things I, I don't want to forget that because I think that's kind of like the core bedrock of kind of what you're doing is you're tying this all to kind of colonialism, right? One of the things I think is interesting, kind of just stay with this idea of underdevelopment, is um, I've not read a ton of uh, Samir Amin, but uh, a little bit, right? And he talks about this idea of blocked development. And it's, I think there's something really interesting about what you get with this idea. He talks about, he does this case study on the Ivory Coast, for mm. example, where um, he talks about as a, as a French colony in the, in the Frank zone um, at the time, that 
very similarly, that you don't have the conditions for the accumulation of capital to emerge. And so what you just get is this like bloodletting process. Mm. Because it's not just that there aren't the conditions for the proletarianization to occur, but you don't even really have the robust conditions for a bourgeoisie to be developed in the nation state itself. Yeah. Right? Do you think that's right? I mean, did something similar happen in India that, that with India as a colonized nation that yeah there's a sense in which there are like bourgeois deputies mm. of British capital but they're not like domestic it's not domestic it's not the no. the, uh, the development or constitution of domestic capital Very, is that right uh, there was there was the net effect of the of the British being in India was that capital was destroyed rather than being created and expanded yeah. That's the history of India. I mean, that's why the, the works of um, Utsa and Prabhat Patnaik, two Indian economists, Marxists, uh, it's extremely important for the left to, to be in touch with what they're saying. They say that 9.2 trillion pounds was ripped out of India during the colonial period from 1765 when the British uh, assumed control over the, um, the treasury and the tax collection of, of Bengal to 1747 when India gained independence, 9.2 trillion. If you convert that to US dollars, given the prevailing rate of that time, that would be about 45 trillion dollars, right? Uh, ripped out of India. And that also coincides with a period in which India experienced devastating famines that killed anywhere between, you know, 40 to 45 million people. Um, you have some you have some numbers here, um, and I can't remember off the top of my head, so I'll see if I can find it real quick, where you talk about the percentage of wealth lost. It was like, Prior to colonial exploitation, India uh, represented yeah, like what, like sixty percent or something. True, that's right. Um, I of think the, global wealth, and then yeah. it went down to like four percent afterwards. The work by Angus Madison is really good on this, and okay. um, according to him, in seventeen fifty. Um, which is after the Mughal period because the Mughals and the Marathas had been waging a war for 27 years. There was a period of instability and fragmentation, but nonetheless, I think around either 1700 or 1750, but the percentage was roughly the same in terms of how much of the global GDP India made up, and it was about 24, 25. Oh, that's what it was. That's 60%. Yeah, that's right. It was like 24%. 24%, yeah. yeah. Um, but when the British left, it was about 4%. That's right, which is a... A ridiculous drop. Mm-hmm. I mean, of yeah. course, the the apologists for what the British did would say that's not because India's economy shrank. It's not because India was bled from. It's just that b- the British economy grew. But then, mm. why did the British economy grow? Right. Yeah. This historically unprecedented um, uh, event, where this uh, frozen island off the coast of Europe, historically irrelevant, considered <laughs> barbarians by the Romans, <laughs> right, right, has this like hundred year, you know, period of just you know, unprecedented industrial growth and it has nothing to do with the fact that they were extracting one you taking a third of the tax revenues from india and using that to buy commodities from india that's not a normal exchange so the way can you that, explain this real quick sure sure yeah, so I what, can. Is, what does this mean like what's happening <clears throat> so the way that it worked is this that if um if you're an indian peasant and i'm the tax collector okay. um representing would, the british empire right right okay. you'd pay your taxes to me right okay and then with those taxes i would then buy your goods Right. Now, so long as we're different people in the, in the sense that you're paying tax to one guy, one British official, yeah. and then um, someone else comes along as a, as a merchant and says, I'm going to buy your goods, right? It doesn't feel like you're being robbed, but in a sense, you are, mm. right? Because mm. um, the way that this system worked was that, yeah, like they would take, they would uh, leave aside one third of the taxes that they raised from India and then use that to buy goods from Indians. 
That's not a normal transaction. It didn't happen in any other mm. any other country within the British Empire. Right? Definitely didn't happen to happen in the case mm. of Australia. Australia was allowed to keep its export earnings and mm. then use that to industrialize. Whereas India was robbed of its export earnings through a very clever system called the council bill system. So what they used to do there is that um, any foreign merchant, any foreign business entity that wanted to do business with India, they would have to um, leave their deposits with the British at the Bank of England. And in exchange, the British would give them council bills, pieces of paper, essentially, that they would then go to India exchange, and then use that to exchange with, uh, with the Indian producer. Right. Mm-hmm. So the Indian producer would accept these council bills because they could then exchange that for um, taxation revenue that's been exacted from them in the first place. Oh, wow. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh. Um, is this, was this common in other colonial relations as well? Yeah, or was yeah. this primarily a British empire to Indian? Thing? Walter Rodney writes about how um, this was the same uh, process that they had uh, started to implement in Africa. Okay. So, particularly in in um, African British Empire, or did like the French Empire do this as well? Maybe with their. I don't know about the French. I'm, I'm assuming they did something. Um, probably. I'm assuming they did, right? Okay. But um, I haven't. Yeah. Uh, I'm. Yeah, I think it's a, you can make a strong assumption that these policies were common. Yeah. Um, because it's just about taxation, right? And it's mm. a very impersonal system. Mm. Um, it's simply yeah. about a transfer of wealth from one geographic region to another. Right. Using the tax system. Right. Okay. So I mean, I think. I think especially anyone who's listening to this podcast, I think anyone who's slightly left, um, I think I think people who understand the system of colonialism would immediately be like, yeah, colonialism's fucked up, right? <laughs> yeah. Pretty simply. So Trot's anti-Stalinists as well would probably also have a similar colonialism sucks as a system of course. Yeah. position. So why do you think there's such a division with how it is that the, um, the anti-Stalinist left views the history of colonialism in relation to Stalinism versus like a position that you would advocate for? You, you know what I've noticed, right? That um, that a lot of a lot of the people who talk about anti-colonialism on the left, they they have a far more thorough uh, thorough um, amount of like a repertoire of language for denouncing the Soviet Union than they do for even understanding how the British Empire was able to build everything. Mm. I mean, including Australia. I mean, Australia would not have been possible without British investment. That British investment would not have been possible without the, the flow of wealth, the drain of wealth from India. Mm. So even Australia was to a large degree built with Indian money. Um, but, crazy, you know, the yeah. crimes of Stalinism are known much more than the mm. crimes of, uh, of British imperialism. But I'm mm. saying that there's a link. There's a very strong link between anti-colonialism and anti-Stalinism. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's not just as simple as like the victors write the history books, but there is something to that, right? You do mention at some point, I think at the very beginning here, you talk about how uh, racism, which we could also call colonial chauvinism, which you say is kind of a, they're synonymous, sure. right? Which is Lenin's term, right? Colonial chauvinism. He uses the term, yeah. Right. So racism is not just a tool of capital to divide labor. It is also an ideological weapon employed primarily by empires to shape how their citizens think about other nations in accordance with their geopolitical strategy. Hmm. Which, I mean, I think that seems to make a lot of sense, right? Like, I think that I am someone who is aware of my ideological conditioning, like I was talking about earlier. Um, So then my question is this, is, okay, if we can grant all of this, we recognize this, like, why go, why be pro-Stalinist or, like, why why defend so virulently stalinism like why take that position rather than like 
I don't know, is there a third option? Like, like maybe don't be anti-Stalinist, not pro-Stalinist. Is there like a third option that just rejects the whole binary altogether? Do you know what I mean? So long as we are ashamed of the history of the countries where communist parties have taken power and attempted to build socialism, be it the Soviet Union or China, mm-hmm. the demonization of these countries will always be used as a, as a battering ram to be whacked over the back of our heads. Yeah. So there's kind of a, almost, it's almost like there's a pragmatic element to this as well. Interesting. It's pragmatism. I mean, uh, we we should recognize that there are multiple narratives, that the narrative that we have is is deeply Eurocentric, mm. uh, which is the narrative that says, I mean, particularly with Trotskyism, that uh, it's the fault of Stalin that the revolution didn't spread to the rest of the world. Right. Um, no, I mean, it's, have a look at yourself, you know, in a sense, you know, Stalin plays the role of the sacrifice, you know, he pays for the sins of the um, Western leftists right. who fail to look at their own original sin, you know, mm. the original sins that the empires that, mm. that they lived in and grew up with were founded upon, mm. you know, the dispossession of Aboriginal people in this country, uh, the drain of wealth from India, which is completely unheard of or talked about. I mean, there are some um, uh, academics, uh, um you know, in universities in Australia, you know, who I won't mention, right, <laughs> who have written books about Marxist uh, political economy and just completely ignored the question of the drain altogether, you know. Mm. Um, even going so far as to say, look, you know, the British British imperialism brought growth. <laughs> mm. um, and the only the only time it didn't bring, that, that, it, that, it, um, that it had the opposite effect on the country that it subjugated was in the case of China and the Opium Wars. Hmm. Well, I mean, how can you ignore India? It's the elephant in the room. Hmm. Why do you think that is, that India is ignored? Is it, is it just too easy to ignore? Um, because nations, this is the point that I always make, is that the narrative that people have in their heads about the world um, is, is, is constructed. You know, it's not something that they've automatically come to. It's like, it's like that Life of Brian sketch where, um, you know, he says to, Brian says to the people outside, he says, you're all individuals. And they say, yes, we are all individuals. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In many, in many ways, in many ways, like, you know, liberalism is, um, is just conformity masquerading as, as individualism. So really, you know, the, mm. your narrative is not the only one. There are multiple mm. other narratives there. And the, the narrative that I put forward is that um, the Soviet Union looks very different from a post-colonial perspective. I mean, mm. uh, if you live in, if you come from like Asia, Africa, Latin America, countries that have been ravaged by the, you know, multiple European colonial powers, beginning with the mm. Portuguese and the Spanish, the French, the British, uh, the Dutch, um, and their systems of wealth extraction, then the, the 20th century was actually a period of, of reprieve because decolonization happened. It wasn't perfect. Mm. There's still a lot of bad things. I mean, there's a lot of corrupt capitalist governments in the third world, but the fact right. is they were no longer being, they were no longer physically, mm. violently, militarily subjugated by a handful of European colonial powers. And part of the reason for that is because the Soviet Union represented a defection. It represented a defection from the camp of the European colonial powers to the side of the third world. So is there a sense in which you're, you're even saying that the Soviet Union um, was inherently anti-colonial? It was, it was, in terms of its actions. I mean, we got to remember that like uh, the when, when a lot of leftists in this country say that they're against colonialism, 
I think they're taking this for granted, right? That leftists, that socialists would have that as a part of their ideological repertoire to say, look, we're against colonialism, right? Yeah, like obviously. Yeah, oh, right. obviously, I think right. that. But actually, Liberation of all peoples sort of thing. Yeah, right. actually, in the 19th century, that I would argue that the dominant um, trend among the various European socialist parties that comprised the Second International was one of um, out-and-out support for colonialism. Yeah, you have a couple of interesting quotes here in this piece um, where it's... Uh, so one of the... Deli- this is quoting from your, your piece here sure. that I'll link to in the show notes for people listening too. But um, it's one of the delegates uh, of the German Socialist Party named Edward David stated, Europe needs colonies. It does not have enough of them. And then in response to Karl Kautsky's suggestion that backward peoples, that's a quote, be offered economic resistance... Henry van Kuhl of the Dutch Socialist Workers' Party said, Suppose we bring a machine to the savages of Central Africa. What will they do with it? Perhaps they will start up a war dance around it. Perhaps they will kill us or give an, or even eat us. And while saying these things, his supporters jeered. So this is, this is what you're talking about. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. You think this was a dominant position in these parties? The vote was very close. We have to remember that the only reason they voted against colonialism at the Second International was because countries like Russia and India were allocated 20 votes because of their large population size. Mm. And yet the, the vote was very, very close. It came down to like, you know, something like 20 or something like that. You know? So if you have 40 votes from like two countries, Russia and India, basically taking staunchly the anti-colonial position as advocated by Lenin and defended by Dadabha Nauroji, who's an Indian um, nationalist economist who I mentioned in there as well. He also spoke at the, at the Second International. Um, there was a sense in which there was, a, um, there was geopolitical factions forming at that stage mm. between Russia and the, uh, the countries that were being oppressed by the British Empire, hmm. particular, particularly India, which is the cash cow, one-sixth of the world's population. Um, so, yeah, don't, I think a lot of people take anti-colonialism for granted as if it's something that would have always been a part of right. Marxist discourse. Uh, it's, not a, it's not a fair assumption to make. What do you think about Marx's position on colonialism? Is it consistent? throughout or does it get better it gets worse? better it gets definitely better. gets better because in the beginning his his assumption core assumption is one of class polarization the world is just dividing into classes right right later on by by the 1880s he he realizes mm. that there's a bleeding process um you know Engels even went so far as to say look you know if there was a socialist revolution in a country like Britain, India might still have to uh, fight a war of independence against the British to get there, wow. to get national independence. You know, like mm. in the sense that he could already perceive in in the in the eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, that countries, even if they had socialist revolutions in Europe, would continue uh, colonizing, exploiting, and expropriating the third world. Hmm. Yeah, I want to go back real quick. Um, so, so I don't forget it, and then um, obviously there's a lot of stuff we could talk about. So, but uh, you said something along the lines of um, until we kind of reconcile, or if if we don't stop just simply denigrating the actual instantiations of socialism around the world, then we'll never actually be able to gain any sort of like political foothold wielding that term because it's immediately hmm. a signifier that's just able to be disregarded because it's aligned with totalitarianism right exactly um and this kind of seems to me because like one of the one of the typical anti-stalinist positions is that uh, is that you'll see is kind of this like subtle this subtle way of criticizing it it's like well true communism has never been enacted mm-hmm. or true socialism has never been enacted that was state capitalism right that was bureaucratic 
management state capitalism. That wasn't socialism. That wasn't communism. Um, this seems to be, you know, Trotskyists, uh, Trotskyists kind of echo this sentiment. Uh, other sort of like liberal progressive types that maybe have communitarian or communist fancies in their mind, but they don't really think it's politically viable. They're like, well, it's never really fully been enacted because it can't. Or maybe the trot line is it hasn't been fully enacted because it was stopped by the totalitarian um, dictates of, of a despot or something mm. like that. And so it seems to create this sort of like this fantasy that communism is this this image, this future image that uh, can be realized in perfection. And it's only because of a few bad apples you know, that it didn't happen. But if we just continue the permanent revolution, then we'll be able to realize it. To me, that seems kind of like one way of um, of subtly sort of conditioning the way that we think about what communism is and its its viability. But you don't, you probably wouldn't like that that narrative at all, right? No, I don't. It's defeatist. I mean, quite frankly, if that's the line you're running, then um, then you ought to be defeated by the enemies of socialism. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why? Why do you say that? Well, because look at the look at the the current uh, current up and coming superpower, China. Right. Yeah. You, know, you can either look at the glass half empty or the glass half full. Um, so what I've noticed over the past you know twenty years or so is that um, people who defend capitalism. They've got a long record of also saying China is where it is now. It is. It's able to. It's managed to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty because of capitalism. Because of capitalism. That's right. That's, They're looking yeah. at the glass half full from the standpoint of capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. But we as socialists don't do that. We actually look at it and try and nitpick. Oh, they did this wrong. They did this wrong. But then we don't look at the big elephant in the room, which is that they are responsible for a hundred percent of the poverty alleviation of the last century. Mm. Um, so that's significant and. I would say that was achieved to the extent that China is socialist, to the extent that China puts a leash on the capitalist class. Yeah, it has a capitalist class, that's true. Um, but a formulation that I that I preferred a lot more to the to the one that people have now, which is that, you know, if they look at a country and if it has elements of capitalism, then they completely cancel it. You're cancelled, you're no longer socialist, as if they're popes, you know, and they're right. excommunicating like someone who sinned or something like that. Mm. Um, whereas I tend mm. to agree with the formulation that um, you know, state capital state capitalism is the highest form of capitalism, but it's the lowest form of socialism or communism. Mm. You know, so yeah, I mean, even if it's like just a dirigious state, technocratically, what it does is that it controls imports, controls exports. Um, the the banking sector is nationalized. The commanding heights of the economy are nationalized, which is why China is able to um, produce smartphones so cheaply because it's rare earth minerals are run by mines that operate on a loss. Mm. Things like that. Mm. All of that kind of technocratic stuff, right? I would just be like, yeah, that's socialism. You know what? Like, I agree that that's socialism because it's going to help you gain power. I mean, do we care about being theoretically correct and nitpicking on everything and, you know, uh, uh, acting acting like we're just gazing over these different societies and, like, condemning them according to the sins they've committed? Or do we actually want to present a historic narrative that is capable of taking power? Okay, so then to that end, and we kind of talked about this. We had a reading group for people that are listening a few weeks back, and a couple of these issues came up, and my question was, and I still wonder this, like, why do we need to retain the moniker of socialism or Marxism or Stalinism or even talk about these past historical traditions? Why not maybe shift tack, politically speaking, because this would be maybe viable as an option to appeal to more people, to talk about 
the policies or the proposals or the activities that were successful within these regimes that you find inspirational. So talk mm. about nationalizing banks, for example. Why not talk about that, but without attaching so much to... I mean, I know people are immediately, as mm. soon as you fucking say, let's nationalize the internet or something like that, let's nationalize Facebook and all these platforms, immediately can be like, that's a socialist takeover. But, you know, I think a lot of people are starting to see through that bullshit, that those are just political talking points, that that's just spin to try to, like, um, entrench themselves in... in people within their own blue-pilled path, right? But, but why not shift like to a different tack, a different approach? Why, why even talk about Stalin? Why retain those terms? And I wonder this for myself because I don't know how valuable it is. People are like, are you a Marxist? Are you a communist? You're this. And whenever somebody says that to me, especially like with a tweet online, I just immediately feel icky, mm -hmm. you know? They're like, I know you won't agree with this because you're a communist or because you're a socialist. And I'm like, but that's not why I don't agree with that. Mm -hmm. It's not because I'm a this that I don't agree with that. I don't think. I mean, sure, I have presuppositions, but it just makes me feel so boxed in. Mm. And I wonder, is there a sense in which we can kind of simultaneously valorize the things that you want to draw attention to, but without without like closing the, 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 the steel doors on people's ears when they hear the bad words, socialism, Marxism, communism. If you so. can't do it well, don't do it. That's my advice. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. So if, if someone if someone says, oh, JF, I mean, I find that, like, you know, uh, take if I were to take up your positions, it would be like, you know, rolling a boulder up a hill. And I'm like, yeah, well, once the boulder feels like a mm. tennis ball, then you start. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a really good analogy. I like that. Yeah, I like that. So it's almost like, it's almost like you're saying if you're on X radio show that had this audience, you would say certain things. And if yeah. you're on revolutionary left radio shout out to Brett what up yeah you're gonna fucking go full tanky on us it's fine exactly exactly I mean, but everyone has yeah. everyone has multiple voices depending on who they're talking to I mean yeah. we shouldn't it's not lying it's just presenting a different side of yourself mm. yeah yeah <sighs> I know I, I'm, I'm partly like I, I'm sympathetic to that I am I am I am but at the same time I can also just I can hear I can hear my trot friends <laughs> just squirming in their seats right now you know what do you say to what do you say to a hard-lined trot or let's just say at the very least anti-Stalinist leftist even anarchist anarchists trots what do you say to them to try to be like guys listen like, do you sympathize with where they're coming in from? Say, I get where you're coming from, but here's why we need to have a richer understanding um, of Stalinism, and let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Because I think that's kind of what your your criticism of them is in some ways, that they are kind of just discarding. If they're on the same team, in the sense that they also want socialism, then you argue in, 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 in the form of tactics. You know, so you'd say, okay. look... Um, they're always gonna they're always gonna use this against you. Even you can denounce Stalin again and again. You can denounce the Soviet Union, denounce China, but they will still tie you with the same brush. Right. And so you, you you'd be better off if you want to achieve all of these things. You'd be better off just like not calling yourself a communist and a socialist mm. because you can't do both. You can't serve two masters, right? Mm. You know, in the words of Christ, because <laughs> you'll love one and hate the other. Mm. So you can't serve, um, you know, anti-Stalinism and socialism at the same time. It's just not going to work. It's going to be a mixed message. People are going to get confused. Mm. I mean, I'm um, fucking confused. I, 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 it's funny. I, when, I, when I talk with you and I have conversations with you, I really see 
some of your perspective. A couple of the things you said in our reading group I thought were so provocative. And I've been talking with a couple of other people that were kind of there. Um, you know, there's a woman that we were talking with, yeah. Janet. I don't know if she's listening, but shout out to Janet. Um, but she, uh, you know, she was obviously, she's very sort of, she is anti-Stalinist, yeah, we would say, she is. right? Um, she definitely, I think, comes out of that Cliffite tradition, yeah. right? Um, I, th- I think, if I'm misrepresenting you, Janet, shoot me a message and tell me I'm wrong. But I don't think so. Um, but like, so she was very, very sort of opposed to you and you were taking the opposite position. But one of the things you said that has stuck with me, and I'm really trying to think through and work through it, is you said something along the lines of um, the reason that like we in Australia, or maybe me in the United States, or let's say the Anglo world, the Western European world, are so critical of Stalinist Soviet Russia is that we look at it as a step back. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas me, speaking of you, uh, coming from an Indian background, I look, we look, the post-colonial, the, the colonial world, the, the post-colonial world, we look at the Soviet Union as an improvement. Yeah. And we maybe look at like the Anglo-Western world as a type of improvement too, but we also are very eminently aware of the colonialism that they, they subjugated us under. So that's not really the kind of improvement, like we're not really looking at the British Empire going like... That's yeah. the shit that we want. Maybe in some ways you're like, yeah, they got like nice cars and iPhones or whatever the fuck it was, right? Nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe some of that, right? Good movies or something like that. I don't know. Um, so maybe there are some things that you look at, but ultimately you're like, fuck. Why would we want to emulate the very oppressors that extracted forty trillion yeah. of wealth from us? That reduced our share of global GDP from 20-something percent to 4% in mm. just a couple hundred years that extracted us. Like, why would we want to emulate that? Fuck, we've got this other example that has supported us. They've aligned themselves with us. They've been clearly anti-colonial and fighting the imperial oppressors, uh, oppressors that we ourselves are trying to free ourselves mm. from. And I thought that was really kind of interesting. Can you unpack this yeah, a little bit sure. more? Like, um, yeah, sure. Uh, when my grandparents were like in their 30s, um, that's when Joseph Stalin died, and India's prime minister actually wrote a tribute to him. Mm. You know, so that mm. tells you something. Was was it a communist party? In no, India? no, it was a it was a left nationalist party. So it's okay. the Congress party. This, this is a Jawaharlal Nehru. Um, so in India, you know, the attitude towards Stalin is not that he's some like you know evil, horrible person. Although that perspective definitely exists, especially among elite um, uh, elite circles at universities. I mean, that definitely mm-hmm. exists. But in the part of India that I'm from, Kerala, where the, the Communist Party of India Marxist has um, a degree of ideological hegemony, Stalin is is seen as a as as a leader who transformed Russia from a from a backward, impoverished, illiterate peasant society into a superpower, mm. and um, the period the the Soviet era is, is recognized as being one in which um, there was a lot of like kind of brotherly solidarity mm. from from the Russians. I mean, India did not have to pay for oil in hard currency. India could um, could import oil from Russia by paying in rupees. Mm. You know that's. Um, and then after after 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, India was kind of hooked back onto the petrodollar. Mm. You know, so the the period of of the of so-called Stalinism, you know, especially after the Second World War. I mean, I know Stalin didn't uh, Stalin died in 1953, um, but generally the, the 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 system that he built, the state that like was built on his watch, um, played a a very important role for the Third World. Um, 
you know, so even, for example, something that leftists would just shudder at, you know, the, the fact that the Soviet Union sold weapons to post-colonial countries, right? Mm. We think of that as, oh, weapons are bad, you know, etc. No, but it's also a way of these countries maintaining their sovereignty <laughs> against the former European colonial powers that had that technological military hegemony for a period of 120 years. It was just going up and up in terms of the hegemony they were exercising over the planet. The scramble for Africa happened in the late 19th century. Mm. So so then what happened is that you know they fought each other in the first world war which weakened them and then world war ii happened which you know subsequently weakened europe even more and that's what kind of allowed the the oppressed people of many um of many countries across africa and asia to get their freedom you know mm. because the former european colonial powers had gone gone ahead and slaughtered each other <laughs> and they were bankrupt yeah but i but then you know but then the, you get the emergence of like the marshall plan and structural adjustment exactly. programs and things like that and that's when you get the the rise of the real rise of the american empire that's, that's right. when you get that the solidification would save the american empire right yeah and so then it turns into almost it's like um, this weakening of the Western empires, plural, into a sort of almost homogenization of empire, which I think kind of seems to make sense, is that you get like this this pseudo, maybe United Nations empire, but, but it's very American Anglo-led, you know, with Germany and France there as well. But um, yeah. the, the United States is to Britain what, um, what Rome is to Greece. I guess mm. um, I see them as an extension of the same Anglo Empire. Um, the, okay. the the thing is that when a lot of people talk about imperialism, um, it's good that you brought that up. They they still have their mindset um, uh, situated in in the World War One era when there was multiple rival imperial yeah. powers fighting each other. It's empire versus empire, right, 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 right. But that era basically ended after the Second World War because after the Second World yeah. War. All of the former European colonial empires, plus Japan, were pushed into a single block. They became more or less allies in the form of NATO and the US alliance with Japan. And their enemies were the former post-colonial countries, or sorry, the post-colonial countries, the former colonized countries of the mm. post-colonial world. And the, 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 the Soviet Union and China was, was a part of that camp. So you had basically two camps, mm. the socialist world and the post-colonial world on one side. And on the other side, you've got the former European colonial empires that had historically slaughtered each other. Mm. And it's because they slaughtered each other, mutually weakened each other, that the post-colonial camp was, in a sense, able to emerge. And that's actually what explains the Second World War for me. Um, because we have to ask ourselves, what would the world be like had the Nazis won the Second World War? And um, for, for people from you know, uh, post-colonial countries... Uh, the difference between the Nazis and the Soviet Union is that the Nazis were a pro-colonial power. The, the Nazi white supremacist ideology, what it really was, was, was a soft power offensive. It was an attempt to appeal to the, to the white countries, the Anglo countries, mm. France, um, and say, look, because we all belong to the same master race, we should form some degree of geopolitical unity and then collectively subjugate the rest of the world, the inferior races of the third world. And Germany's appeal towards the, the other European colonial powers was to say, look, um, let me fight against the Soviet Union, right? Because the Soviet Union is a threat to us in two ways, right? One, ideologically, they're, they're attempting to... Um, uh, uh, the model that they, that they have poses an internal ideological threat, that we mm. know about. But secondly, they are an anti-colonial power, mm. you know? And so this is why, why you start to see 
um, the the meme of anti-Semitism also being used in in to push an anti-colonial um, agenda, because the Jews are presented as these people who who manage to um, whip up revolutionary fervor in Russia, take control of the country, subjugate the Slavs. Uh, the Slavs are basically just presented as these, like, you know, these, this is in Nazi propaganda, they're presented as, like, basically just completely mindless robots <laughs> controlled by Jewish power at the top. Mm. And then the Jews are also inciting the inferior races, the, the people of the third world, in rebellion against the master race, whites, okay. white colonial rule, you know? Mm. And so this is why, you know, uh, you know, the... Even, even the narrative of anti-Semitism now has been stripped of that entire anti-colonial context. Mm. Now it's simply about Israel. <laughs> mm. You know, that's the context in which you, you hear about anti-Semitism. Um, so, yeah, I mean, what would have happened had the Nazis won the Second World War? A, a pro-colonial power would have come to power. An anti-colonial superpower would have been completely defeated. And colonialism could have been intensified even further, even worse. Mm. And that would have been just you know, horrid, a horrid timeline that I would not want to live in. I mean, I think, I think that it, I think that fair-minded anti-Stalinists still recognize that obviously the Eastern Front was won by the USSR. And that really maybe we could even say that Germany was defeated ultimately by, uh, you talk about the martyrdom of the millions of people of the USSR that kept national socialism at bay and yeah. ultimately quashed it. I think, I mean, don't you think, I mean, a lot of people will say that, right? Because what I wonder is, I wonder is sometimes, and you're a very provocative writer. Oh, and, thank you. Um, and, and, I, and I think it's very gripping. But sometimes what I wonder is, um, would a, like, would a trot look at this or an anti-Stalinist look at this and be like, look, man, I agree with a lot of the stuff you're saying. I just think that you're also papering over some of the internal struggles and complexities that then we need to direct and um, that, that release, let's say, certain um, points of criticism that we need to direct at Stalin, right? You know, the invasion of Hungary and stuff like that in 56, for example. That's After Stalin. Which is after Stalin, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, I mean, but it's still, it's something I defend. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, see, that's that's what I mean. So, yeah. like, 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 why... Yeah, why defend why defend Stalinism in light of these things that are clearly like some people would say that there are criticisms um, like that, like the invasion of Hungary and and um, um, the treatment of the kulaks and um, Ukraine and stuff like that. Like, like what's what's the benefit in that aspect of it? You know? Look, I'm I'm uh, all I'm saying is that uh, there are multiple narratives. So if someone from Hungary or Czechoslovakia or Poland, for example, were to sit with me and say, "Look, this is what my family went through. This is why we don't like the Soviet Union." Right. I'm not going to try and argue with them. I, in fact, I empathize fully with people who have a have a negative historical family background in the Soviet Union. I get that. But what I've noticed is that those narratives are hegemonic in our society. The mm. narratives that are not mm. hegemonic are the ones that come from the third world. Gotcha. Yeah. It's kind of, um, you know, Spivak, Gatry Spivak? Yeah. She yeah. talks about, you know, can the subaltern speak or how can the subaltern speak? And I think one of the things that's so important is not only how can the subaltern speak, but how can, how can we hear the subaltern, right? Which is important. It's like, how do you hear the voice of the subaltern? let's say, the otherness of the other? How can you be attuned to the otherness of the other without just simply, like, listening and then, like, I don't know, patronizing them, patting them on the head, or being yeah. like, oh, you're right, well, we'll incorporate you into our thing. How do you truly let the post-colonial voice speak? And this is something that I, I find a really challenging, um, a really challenging, 
um, endeavor is to try to, to listen more. Yeah. So I'm always curious at this sort of thing. I'm, I'm always wanting to listen. It's just, fuck, man, maybe I just have so much like anti-Stalinist propaganda in my own head, you know? Maybe. That when I hear about it, it's hard for me to... It's, it's, it's not hard for me to say that, oh, yeah, I can understand elements of maybe poverty alleviation, um, uh, technological advancements, rapid industrialization in a country that pretty much everybody thought was mm. a backwards nation. Fuck you even talk about how um, Hitler himself wanted to colonize Russia. He did. Basically. He, did. he wanted to colonize because of that cheap resource because they were just this backwards backwards, under-industrialized, yeah. um, cheap agricultural landscape. And it was like, fuck, let's he just go in there. Slavs were inferior. Yeah, let's just go do to them what Britain is doing to India. Yeah. So yeah. the fact that you can compare where India were in their ability to just uh, give up their raw materials uh, under the thumb of subjugation, the, the fact that there's like a, com- a comparison there or an analogy there means that the fact that that industrialization and modernization happened so rapidly in in the Soviet Union is kind of a miracle. So we need to recognize those things and we need to 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 praise those things. But at the same time, then I kind of think like maybe there's something inherently limiting about um, about a communist party that controls a nation. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. Like you seem to be very speak very. Or to view very highly the sort of centralized power of a of a political party yeah. and a nation state. Well, I tend to be a little bit maybe like anarcho communist even somewhat, right? So yeah. yeah, is that about right? Like you think that nationalism is not a dirty word, we might say. Whereas for me, I think of you know the idea of socialism in one country and um, of a nationalist socialist not not national socialist a national. Uh, country-based bureaucratic regime, I kind of worry that that's inherently going to just stifle the possibilities because you enclose yourself. You kind of foreclose yourself from anything else because you create strict borders. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Does that make sense? I I know what you mean, but, um, you know, national identity has existed, um, you know, throughout history. Uh, It's just that some national identities are, are based on a history of colonization and conquest, whereas... Other national identities are based on a history of resisting colonization and conquest, right. and so you get very di- you get a very clear divergence in terms of what what nationalism means in different countries. Yeah. Um, so in some countries it's considered quote unquote left wing, in other countries it's considered quote unquote right wing. Yeah. Um, but there are differences. Yeah. I mean, as for the the bureau the the, the the bureaucratic state apparatus and all that kind of state, yeah, I think um, we should be open about the fact that we do want an ideological state. As in, we do want, we don't want the state simply to be a neutral, empty vessel mm. that um, and any number of interests can, can, um, can fill. Mm. Um, we want the state to actually embody a vision, right? And that vision, the, the difference between like the vision that we have and the vision that like Nazis, fascists have is that um, their vision is very exclusionary. You know, it's, mm. it's still thinking in that fascist uh, Nazi mindset of white people are the dominant race. This country should be created in our image and everyone else is basically subordinate. And that's something that obviously I can't accept. I mean, um, if my ancestors paid for uh, the establishment of Australia, the, the settler state, then, um, yeah, I'm going to, in a sense, uh, plant my 
my, my stake in this soil and say, no, I mean, you are not indigenous to this country. The Aboriginal mm. national identity is, is one that I side with. And we do need to have a discussion in this country about what the national identity mm. is going to be without and beyond Anglo-cultural hege uh, Anglo hegemony. Mm. Um, but, you know, the idea that the state should actually embody a vision, right, which is definitely common to fascists and communists, right, doesn't mean that we should then treat that as a fascist thing and say, ah, oh, only the fascists do it, we don't. That's something that we do as well. It's just that our message is a lot more liberating and it serves the interests of the vast majority. It sounds to me, tell me if I'm totally mischaracterizing you here because I wrote this down. It sounds to me that you're almost subtly shifting the, um, the battle lines from primarily being about labor versus capital to almost like politics versus capital like political party or political power versus capital not that you're not saying that labor doesn't have a role mm. it is the political party uh, yeah, of yeah. labor uh, I see what you're saying. but it's almost this top-down approach politics versus capital that's if we have a strong ideological state with i mean how does that get constructed how does that get constituted in a way that would actually be able to contest capital especially in 21st century right um, but I feel like that's where you're almost seeing the battle lines. Whereas maybe, maybe the anti-Stalinist position would precisely see that top-down, or maybe see that as top-down hmm. and inherently bureaucratic and therefore inherently would lead to some of the kind of oppressive elements that they would cite that you see within Stalinism and kind of post-Stalinist Soviet Russia. Whereas they would see, no, we need to build class power. It's like this hmm. horizontal bridging of yeah. the divide of the proletariat around the world so that they can come together and create that revolutionary subject whether it's through you know like building cooperatives yeah, yeah. or whatever right like do you do you see that do you, do you think that that would i mean it would that be are you do you kind of agree with I, that I, I i see i see what you're saying um but uh lenin i believe talked about trade union consciousness so trade union consciousness was like you know if, if workers were to simply um, uh, pursue their own interests then what they would do is they would bargain bargain for like higher wages and and that would be the extent to which their consciousness would go mm -hmm. it takes an ideologue mm. right it takes a, a catalyzing <laughs> like ideology to yeah. basically grip the masses you know so uh, ideology becomes a material force when it grips the masses Marx said that and what mm. did he do essentially he created a kind of religion I mean I'm, I'm just very open about it now mm. right I mean I know that the Marxists like to think of themselves as rational atheists and all that kind mm. of stuff. Like we completely reject religion. But have a look at the Marxist meta-narrative, right? It starts with um, uh, primitive communism, which is somewhat akin to the Garden of Eden. And then you mm. have the original sin of class societies forming the subjugation of... Uh, the mass of the population by a minority, uh, social stratification, labor division. And then eventually you get to a period where, you know, the, 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 the second coming is, is on the horizon and that's when that's right. capitalism emerges, right? Yeah. And so the, the, the second coming is the highest stage of communism, the kingdom of heaven. Mm. You know, so that's when the, that's when history ends. It's a linear yeah. meta narrative, right? I love when you, you're speaking my language now. This is our uh, unique, yeah. uh, shared Hegelian Christianity. Yeah, yeah. No, I dig this. So I was actually thinking about this after our conversation the other day. The way that you portray this like linear narrative. So I'm, for people who are listening, I'm drawing this um, on a timeline right now. So let's say you have uh, Eden uh, as the point on the far left. And then let's say you have the fall. And then let's say you have uh, the second coming. We'll, we'll, we'll call it the new 
the new Jerusalem, I'll just call it the new, right? That's the fulfillment of communism, right? The way you just kind of described this. Um, so in, in Christian eschatology, there's uh, something called the thousand-year reign. Mm-hmm. And it's the thousand-year reign of Jesus. It's sometimes considered like the church age or something Sounds like that. Sounds like thousand-year Reich. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're obviously taking some sort of like inspiration from the biblical ideas, right? But it's this idea of like this thousand-year reign that some people interpret it as being literal, and some people interpret it as being um, metaphorical or whatever. But the metaphorical reading is that we're in the thousand-year reign now, right? It's the age of the church, um, and uh, it's not like perfect, but you know there will be the culmination of of this time period when the new comes. I almost wonder if like. The thousand-year reign is the age of capitalist development in the Marxist narrative, right? From from this this like kind of pseudo-religious reading that you're giving it, where it's like in this phase, things are going to get worse, but simultaneously better. Like worse because capitalism is going to spread, proletarianization of the globe, but better because we're getting closer to the oh, moment yeah, of know, rupture. In, in, in dorky Marxist uh, <laughs> language, it's um you know the the inherent contradiction. Of um, of capitalism are deepening. That's right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Contradiction between the relations of production and the forces of production intensify. But I love, I love thinking about this because it fits. Like, and I don't think I'm forcing it into the schema. It fits perfectly in the way that the Christian narrative views time moving towards kingdom of heaven. That's right. Socialism. Yeah. So you're not saying then that we should discard that religious vision you're kind of almost saying lean into it a little bit but change it and use it for our purposes what i'm, what I'm doing is objectifying marxism because we always as marxists look at the huh. world through marxism whereas i'm yeah. looking at marxism and saying what are the conditions that created this ideology well it came out of europe europe has a christian history mm. so clearly they they have a christian conception of time i mean even hegel's idea nature and spirit is very similar to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mm. It's just that for him, you know, the idea was the was the abstraction. So, for example, communism is an abstraction, right? Mm. And then it manifests itself in something that's flesh and blood, you know, the sun, i.e., mm. um, you know, something like the Soviet Union. The question then is whether you criticize, you, you crucify the Soviet Union for yeah. not living up to the abstraction, mm. or you say, no, you know, I see that the abstraction has some resonance in the in the real, in the... Yeah. Yeah, in the actual flesh and blood existence. Yeah, the concrete in the particular, the universal and singular kind of. This is the point. I mean, you're never going to be able to bridge the gap between the abstract, the abstract, and the concrete. Mm. The concrete is always going to look inferior to the abstract. Always, right? Mm. So the question is whether you want to look at the glass half empty or half full. I say look at it half full and then work with that. Um, if, if it's possible for the British Empire, right, to have convinced people of liberalism, to convince that we are such, so enlightened despite the fact that, you know, the British Empire was founded upon the 48 million dead Indians, you know, tens of millions of Native Americans killed by disease. I mean, all of these crimes of, like, European colonial empires. And yet they're still able to convince their population that, um, you know, uh, we got here through liberalism and free trade and enlightened values, right? Right, right. right. Um, then, by comparison, the crimes of the Soviet Union look relatively like uh, relatively less by comparison. I'm just saying that. Yeah, see, this is what's hard because even when you say that, I can hear I can hear people's like insides turning. They're yeah, like, because you're justifying or you're excusing slaughtering or like uh, inducing famines and stuff like that. And I know that's not what you're doing. No. Um, you're kind of 
in a way, you're kind of making like a both-sidism kind of uh, It is a both-sidism, yes, absolutely. Yes, if the both sides absolutely. fucking suck, yeah. and let's listen to the post-colonial voice to give us the other side, mm. the third the third voice. Yeah. Yeah. The first world and the second world both suck. Let's listen to the third world. But it's also just brutal pragmatism. I mean, China's going to be the superpower of the next century, right? Mm. Now, there's so much anti-China hysteria um, in Australia, and I think that um, the, the biggest irony is that if I were to come to power, the Chinese would absolutely hate me because <laughs> I would emulate their economic system. I'd say, yep, we need to nationalize the banks, nationalize the mines, we get some industry going, and that might even raise the price of raw materials going to China. So they end up being, being favorable. They'd be favorable to the idea of Australia remaining a neoliberal colony. Um, so, oh, a neoliberal quarry, rather, not colony. I mean, Australia, mm. the, 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 the amazing thing about Australia is that Australia has managed to deindustrialize despite mm. not having foreign gunboats on its shores and like a foreign colonial army mm. ripping out tax revenues and using it to <laughs> deindustrialize the country that way. It's happened purely because of the incompetence of the Australian political elite. And that political elite relies on an ideology, the ideology of liberalism and free trade, mm. which historically was premised on the literal free extraction of resources from India. But now that those uh, uh, economic advantages, those abilities to loot a country like India no longer exist, free trade is actually working against Australia's interests. And yet we're stuck with this ideology that that uh, assumes the existence of an empire which, which mm. is now in decline, in terminal decline. Mm. And so if we want to solve our own economic problems, right, this is why when you're speaking to people who have a nationalist mindset, who care about what's good for Australia, um, who don't have a saviour complex, right? Which mm. is the kind of people that Nazis and fascists, they fish from that pond. We don't as leftists, right? Mm -hmm. We say, no, no, you should hate yourself. The, you, mm. the national interest should be irrelevant to you, right? Mm. But if you are speaking to those people, this is the narrative that you have to, that you have to spin. Like pragmatically, mm. this ideology, which praises liberalism, praises the economic system that, that we live in, um, is basically uh, leading us to like walk blind into an economic disaster, an environmental disaster, right? right. I mean, we are losing our industry. House prices are, are just going through the roof. Nobody can afford to live in, in these uh, neoliberal cities anymore, right? Yeah. And so maybe the antidote, for, antidote to that is an ideologically partisan state and to emulate the economic policies of a country like China. But the only way you can even get close to having a discussion even about the nationalization of the banks and, and the commanding heights of the economy um, is if you're able to get over your fear of being called a Stalinist. Hmm. And that, that kind of goes back to, again, the idea that, um, that partly there's an ideological control mechanism that is conditioned by empire. That Stalinism equals evil. Yeah, evil. evil. Good and evil. It's just that. E equals evil. And then simultaneously, I, I still I want to think through this a lot more because I think there's something really fascinating in this about the idea that we look at the Soviet Union as a step back. And it's true. And we were talking about this the other day when we were in uh, having lunch and we were kind of we're in this kitchen with all of these gadgets. And it's like, how do we sit in this relative situation of luxury? where we have a microwave and a refrigerator and we're in this beautiful building with all this high technology and stuff like that. How do we how do we look at this and say like, yeah man, let's have like anything other than yeah. what we have now, yeah. but maybe just better. Because I feel like maybe the idea is, is like, this is where like the accelerationist left, uh, leftists come in, right? Where it's like, hey man, like the technology and stuff that we have now isn't bad. 
it's like making our lives more convenient. We're able to connect with people around the world. I can Skype with my mom and I can live in another country and it's great. I can have community. I can access pretty much any information I want. Let's not disrupt that flow of technological progress. Let's just figure out a way to do it in a way that is quote-unquote communist. And the question I wonder is, is there something almost inherently impossible or if there's something almost inherently anti communist or anti um if there's something that would like even prevent our ability to somehow communize our technological systems of progress from within this liberal framework because it has such an ideological control because it sets the conditions it's it sets the determinant paths and so you really do need some theory of rupture you do need some theory of that radical other that is breaking out. And maybe this is why I'm gravitating to like the post-colonial voice in my own reading and mm. um, reading things like by uh, George Chicarello Marr, who I don't know if you know him, but he was a guest on our podcast, he wrote a book called Decolonizing Dialectics. And um, in my own book, Sartre, he, he doesn't finish the second volume of Critique of Dialectical Reason. And one of the theories from a guy named Robert Bernasconi is because he thought that only the post-colonial voice would be able to actually take over this project and give it ample legs to actually take it where it was supposed to go. So he kind of like cedes the project to Franz Fanon, for example, mm. and he writes the preface to Wretched of the Earth after this, but that that's partly him saying maybe Wretched of the Earth is kind of the actual culmination of the project that yeah. Sartre starts in volume one. So maybe there's something about if we're going to um, actually try to envision futures that are alternative, uh, that are supposedly communist or that are post-capitalist, that we can't do it from within our own liberalized hegemonic frame of thinking. We need the post-colonial voice, um, which I 100% agree with. I just don't know in my own thinking if that then leads me to Stalin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm just not. I'm not there yet. So Stalin is just a symbol. I mean, that's all. Okay. Means, yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just a symbol that gets thrown at you. It's basically just a meme, right? I mean, we're living inside, like, you know, a, an echo chamber where you have this, like, horrible meme of evil Stalinism hanging over your head. Yeah. And, it, and it hangs over, it's like a Damocles sword. It hangs over the head of anyone who advocates any kind of Absolutely. egalitarian social policies, mm. you know? So you just have, you have to actually, you know, you have to take it head on. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. But, you know, more importantly, um, you know, we, about the post-colonial voice... I think we have different narratives because of our own unique family histories. Mm. So, for example, you're someone who is, you know, uh, mostly Anglo background. Like German, Welsh, French, and then, you know, as every American European. says, apparently there's some uh, Native American in us, but <laughs> every, I think every American family claims that. Bit, it's of, bit of Iroquois or Yeah, so it's, I can't remember, I think it was Blackfoot, but I can't remember. So. So your history is one where it kind of peaked just before the First World War. I mean, just after the Second World War, actually. I mean, um, so that's when, like, you know, the, the Second World, the post-war boom was happening. Now, people, our ideology tends to look back at that and say that's capitalism, right? Mm. Actually, no, that was, uh, that was actually a period of dirigist state planning. It was when, um, you know, corporate taxes were much higher, when income, personal income taxes were much higher. Mm. There was capital controls. Um, those are the conditions. Basically, a lot of what China is doing now is like a lot of what any country that industrializes and raises the living standards of its population um, do. I mean, they're pretty much similar technocratically. Technocratically, they're similar. Um, 
But it's massive industrial investment yeah, that's yeah. led by the state. Led by the state. The state has a leading role. The state basically says these industries matter, these industries don't. These industries get to borrow at a lower rate because they are building the means of the means of the means of production. Mm. These industries mm. borrow at a much higher rate because they're producing French perfume or something, right? Right. And the state can the state can risk long-term investment yeah. because it doesn't need that immediate return. The state doesn't investors. go broke. That's right, state doesn't go broke. <laughs> um, Michael Roberts, do you ever read Michael Roberts? No, I don't. Blog? He has a really good blog. It's called, um, I think it's called like The Long Recession. But anyway, he talks about how, what is the cause of crisis. It isn't like underconsumptionism yeah. or anything like that. But it's ultimately a slowdown in capital investment. Yeah. That that's the cause. So capitalism uh, accumulates rapidly when there is exponentially increasing investment yeah and when it doesn't do that it slows down and so when you look at the sort of post-war boom uh, the golden age of capitalism you do see um, exponential rates or steady rates let's say of capital investment into manufacturing and industry and stuff like that which then shifts under neoliberalism yeah right? yeah it radically shifts things turn to finance they turn towards outsourcing the the landscape of capital investment shifts from investing into um, machinery and domestic capital and it turns into this uh, kind of different paradigm simultaneously what you then start to see is you know I mean obviously it culminates in uh, you know the GFC but what you see is this slowdown investment that leads to a slowdown in productivity which leads to deindustrialization and all of these other kind of phenomena um, so it is interesting to think that what is the condition for the means of the means of the means or whatever how you said it of production and it does seem that the state has an has an integral role yeah. in ensuring that there is some kind of development. But the problem is that given that we're at a very late stage of, of the Anglo Empire, right, where uh, free tr- the, the, the concept of free trade is, is, is what undermine, un- sorry, it's what underpins the, uh, the US dollar hegemony okay. um, the, that, we, that we live under. Hmm. Because uh, US dollar hegemony in- requires that other countries keep their markets open and in exchange like the 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 anglo countries so the united states britain australia new zealand they would also have to keep their markets open in order to have imports coming in right see what i'm saying and so and so if you have imports coming in from countries like china and they have a proper industrial policy and your ruling class is completely like undisciplined and instead of Mm. investing in production they just buy up assets and then and then wait for the for the inflation to happen and then get their profits that way if they're just inflating their profits mm. um, then you're gonna end up deindustrializing yeah. and it's gonna be in order to maintain this this system of dollar hegemony right yeah and then when they deindustrialize then um, the the focus on capital shifts to yeah. finance at that point because you have to somehow make up for the fact that you're a net importer yeah and one of the ways you can do that is by turning to finance capital to kind of no no other country in the world can sustain the kind of trade deficits that the United States has or or any of the other Anglo the countries UK they too. all yeah, have yeah. we right. have I was going to ask do all the Ang- well. do all the Anglo countries they all have giant uh, trade, trade deficits if you, in fact yeah. if you look at trade deficits from a per capita point of view which is like how much um, uh, in excess of um, uh, in excess of import, how much? How much exports? Sorry, how much? How much do we import in excess of exports? That's right. Right. Yeah. Um, if you look at that at a, at a per capita level, then um, then yeah, the Anglo Five are actually the highest. So mm-hmm. we we import far more than we export, but that's because there is an artificial demand that's built into this global system of U.S. dollar hegemony, where um, countries need to hold U.S. dollars in order to import oil. That's, that's right. the petrodollar. Yeah. 
Um, but the question is, are we preparing for that to be undermined over time? Because when with Belt and Road Initiative, you've got countries like China, they're building um, all of this infrastructure to, to connect Eurasia. So Eurasia is getting integrated through all of these land routes, right? And in many ways, the European colonial period represented the, the, the victory of, of naval power over land power. But now land power is coming back. So they might not even need the US dollar in the next 20 years, right? It might even be, be sooner than that. Are we then prepared for not having the same purchasing power not being able to import all of these goods cheaply we need an industrial policy but then when you advocate for an industrial policy they say well that goes against dollar hegemony right and then more more often what they'll say even before you even get into a proper technocratic argument about the need to have these policies they'll say ah but socialism failed because of Mao or Stalin or something and of course they don't look at China and say that uh, and that, that socialism has failed because they think capitalism did that right yeah 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 it is interesting because china is now becoming i think from what i understand is trending less um in terms of their kind of share of uh of manufacturing of final goods and it's shifting more towards the other east asian or southeast asian countries right indonesia or even like places like afghanistan and pakistan um that are like huge suppliers for uh like white gloving on alibaba and shit like that like if you want to I don't know if you're gonna start a fucking golf glove company. You can buy uh, gloves from a manufacturing plant in Afghanistan, Pakistan. That they're becoming that there's a, a sort yeah. of like proletarianization that's happening in those there's countries because that's cheap. Yeah, yeah, it's very interesting. It's shifting, and it's partly because um, wage wages are increasing in China, and so wages are increasing. Supplies are becoming more expensive. Raw materials are becoming more expensive. Just slowly over time, and it's because they're building a middle class. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they've got better things to do. They can make phones now, right? That's right. That's right. They don't. They don't Much need to make higher value plastic. added. Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, man, fucking everything was made in China. Right. Yeah. That was the thing. But now it's not. It's, it's Vietnam. Not. It's Indonesia. Exactly. It's Malaysia. Um, yeah. And people look at this and say that it's Chinese imperialism, but actually what the Chinese are doing is exporting capital. But historically, the mm. export of capital was a privileged economic relationship between uh, the Anglo settler states and, and the European colonial powers. Very little capital actually went to the third world. Mm. So China is actually responsible for massive economic diffusion um, to, to Africa, to the countries that you mentioned as That's well. Right. Yeah. Okay, last thing we'll say. There's been an intriguing episode. Um, I'm pretty sure it's been thought-provoking for many people. And if you're out there and you are an anti-Stalinist, I hope you have endured and that you have listened and that you are taking something from this. Because um, I'm learning. I'm learning. Um, I think I still got that, that little bit of that, that French rebellious anarchist in me. You know, the cool smoking a cigarette, like, fuck you to authority, you know, that it's hard for me. It's hard for me to, like, to, to buy wholesale any sort of top-down measure, but I, I, I want to keep thinking about it. But the last thing I will ask you, predictions for the quote-unquote third world moving forward. With China becoming the, I think we both agree that we do think that China will be the economic world power, definitely not the military world power for if ever, but for a very long time. But it will definitely be the economic world power very shortly here. And that this Belt and Road Initiative is to the tune of trillions of dollars investment that is doing something that the United States is not doing. At a time when the United States is in, um, is proposing like protectionist measures, China is opening itself up. Yeah. Um, so what do you think then are the proposals? If, if you have a new age of empire, um, if, if the U.S. is to Britain 
what Rome was to Greece, what is China to the U.S.? China is China. We can't we can't look at China based on uh, on on the history of Europe. So you mentioned okay. uh, Greece and Rome. I mean, they're European empires. In many ways, uh, you know the the countries of Europe and and the United States and Britain. They're all successor states of Greco-Roman civilization to some degree. Um, whereas China historically is just returning to its to its place because they un- they endured a century of humiliation. Mm. Um, that was like the worst period in in a very long time, right? Mm. Um, so now China's returning to its place in the world. Uh, I think they will assume like a similar share of, uh, of the world's GDP that they did prior to the colonial era. Mm. India's going to take some time, but um, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful for India. Uh, it's just that India and China are very different countries in terms mm. of um, how they're nationally composed. I mean, India was, was so dominated by... Um, by, by foreign language, by the British, that um, that English still has a, a great deal of hegemony over the thinking of a lot of people, especially mm-hmm. in elite universities, whereas in China they're a homogenous population, they've been relatively insular, closed off, so they don't really care what Westerners think about them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of allows them to be a lot more intellectually free and fuck independent. The, the CEO of Huawei just came out and was like, we don't need the United States. Yeah, Did you hear that? He's like, fuck it. He's like, yeah, okay, they're going to impose sanctions on us? Fine, we're gonna roll out our new phone that's stacked to the hilt with 5G tech and fuck them. And he literally was like, we don't need the US market. Import substitution industrialization works for culture as well. Mm. And the most extreme example of that is North Korea. They don't wanna be influenced by outside ideologies. They wanna do their own thing. And so they consciously make a very authoritarian decision to cut themselves off from the rest of the world. Mm. So they can have a bit of you know, cultural inbreeding for lack of a better mm. term. But it creates a, it, it creates a delinking process. These people are no longer um, demanding Western goods. You know, it, it keeps them that that mm. would hither, previously have kept them sucked in and indebted to the system yeah. ideologically. That cultural influence is going to be something that's going to be interesting to see yeah. because the United States still has control over the media and dissemination of information mm. with the internet and things like that. And then there are some countries, of course, that are doing their own thing. North Korea and China, for example, by having those um, firewalls that yeah, prevent you. Yeah, themselves off. Which, which is one way of kind of controlling your cultural production in a way, rather than saying, yeah, we're just going to let uh, American film and reality television yeah. just incept all of our fucking minds. But I wonder, I wonder this. Do you think then that 50 years from now, so that if if what we have like post-World War II is a type of neo-colonialism via like the Marshall Plan and finance capital and these structural adjustment programs and things like that that are sort of um, uh, invading, if you will, all of these Southern Hemisphere nations and creating them after their own image insofar as they serve the interests of Northern Hemisphere and um, both state and capital interests. What do you think happens when China takes over that role? Not that they're, maybe, I don't want to, Mm. assume that they're going to have the same insidious or nefarious plan but you know let's say that there is a sense of self-interest there but if they're going to be the kind of um the 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 primary mover let's say of economic growth and development in whatever 21st century post-industrial post-modernization looks like how do you think that affects countries in the african continent because ship ports are being built in Djibouti or in the southern tip of India that are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Like, how then is China going to influence these other nations? Maybe, maybe one, taking away some of the 
imperial influence, both culturally and economically and militarily and otherwise, that the United States and that Western Europe, the NATO alliance, has exerted. And then simultaneously also realizing that capital is still involved hmm. in China's um, westward move here. So like uh, yeah. in west and southern, yeah, what happens? What I, uh, first of all, when it comes to making these predictions, we tend to have this assumption that uh, history is cyclical, that um, if, for example, something happened in the past, then there's going to be some kind of right. repetition that um, in the past it was the United States and then China's going to come in and do mm. something very similar. But what prevents history from being uh, cyclical is technology. So technology is very different now than it was in the 19th century. There's the, the threat of mutually assured destruction. There's, <laughs> right. there's the, the, yeah, I mean, just war in general, like the ability for, for like a war between two countries. Like, for example, the United States and China, that could have happened in the 19th century. It wouldn't have caused a lot of damage. But if it happens now, it could actually end life on Earth, right? Absolutely. Or, for example, the United States and Russia. So what happened in the past is not necessarily going to repeat itself. What I do think the Chinese might endeavor to do is export their population. So, for example, they might say, look, uh, we've been doing trade for all of this Rather time. Rather than exporting been... their inflation, which is what they've been doing. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, by exporting their um, their population, I just mean that, um, you know, if the they might come to a point where once they're the technological leaders, they'd be able to dictate terms on in, in purely in a purely quid pro quo fashion. They wouldn't have to use any violent coercion whatsoever. The economic aces are all up their sleeve. They'd simply be able to say to countries in Africa, look, you know, um, if you want to continue as usual, then just open up your, allow like a small amount of immigration, right? Mm. And then, yeah, I mean, eventually you might see Africa becoming significantly more multicultural, right? I mean, India... More Mandarin and... Cantonese speaking. Yeah, maybe. it might be. It might yeah. be. You might see. You might see India doing the same. You know, assuming that India catches up. India will take a while to catch up, but I think when India does, um, that's going to be another major force, because India is going to have a very large English-speaking population. So, in a sense, you know, if you look at like the former British Empire, right, the economic center of that, which was historically in the Anglo powers, might move to India once India gets its gets its problems sorted. Right. Mm. Now, a lot of that is actually because India didn't resolve its agrarian problems. Mm. So when people talk about the kulaks in, in Russia and how they were oppressed, I mean, the Soviets basically just wanted to produce cheap food. And so to do that, they went after the landlord class. But India historically hasn't gone after its landlord class. It hasn't mm. conducted the land reforms that would be necessary for industrial growth to happen. But once that problem um, sorts itself out, and I have immense faith in the Indian proletariat that they'll eventually be able to uh, fulfill those national tasks, then you'll see India proceeding on the same path as well. Do you worry that if China opens up its borders, right, and they start to export their population, does that not expose them maybe too much to, like, when you're not consolidated, when you're not centralized, then your, your power kind of diminishes a little bit, right? You become diffuse, hmm. and it's much easier for enemies to come in, right? or for influence, let's say not enemies, but just influence to come in. And that's when you get syncretism, you know, your ideas meld with their ideas, or your economic policies meld with their economic policies. And then what I wonder is, in that process of diffusion, does that not just expose them more to the potential for capital to, because the, 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 the isomorphic desire of capital is to fucking eat everything, hmm. right? And it can convert everything. It can acetize anything, it can commodify anything, and that's what it that's how it functions if we can give it a level of subjectivity, right? Um, so does that not potentially expose them to just 
saying that, yeah, they're holding on right now to that, to that kernel of socialism, of state-run, ideological state-run power, but that as soon as they start to kind of, that maybe that this Belt and Road Initiative in a way will be very beneficial for them in one sense, but it will also radically transform what it means to be China. That you might get like this weird, like, China-India or something like that, or like this mm -hmm. weird conglomeration of a new type of United States where it's this federal super state, a new European Union, but an yeah. Asian Union. Yeah. You know, something like that. Could be. Like, like an Asian African Union, something. I don't know. And then when that happens, then it becomes this large single market, and then you just get capital. Yeah, I, I think we're heading towards multipolarity, actually. I don't think we're going to see uh, the similar unipolar cycle that we did in the past, where you've oh, okay. got one hegemony and that's it. Interesting. I think uh, African countries in particular have a lot of potential. A lot of them are showing like um, immense growth. The main problem is internal inequality, um, corruption, things like that. But um, the, the world is headed towards multipolarity. I'll just leave it with that. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's use that as the button then for the episode, man. Sure. Cool, cool. Um, where can people find you on the internet so they can read your shit? Uh, you can find me, you can find my website, it's theorientaldespot.com. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Jay Tharapel, that's my name, surname T-H-A-R-A-P-P-E-L. On Twitter, I'm uh, at Commissar underscore J, or just search Jay Tharapel, you'll be able to find me there as well. Cool. Sick, bro. Thank you, man. Yeah.